Udi. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Best-selling writer and actress Carol Drinkwater has sold over a million books about her life on an olive farm in the south of France. She was the kinky nurse in A Clockwork Orange. James Herriot's wife, Helen, in the hit British TV show All Creatures Great and Small, and writes beautifully evocative novels that bring the sights, sounds and smells of France to life in a way that will make you feel you're sipping rosé on a vine-covered terrace overlooking the Mediterranean in the warmth of the summer sun, with a little bit of danger thrown in for good measure. Carol Drinkwater is on the Big Travel Podcast. We might as well just go straight to your... I think, should we start with your books? Because the loveliest things I've read about your books is they, they're enough to make you rush straight to the Eurostar. Because they are so... <laughs> they written by someone who works for Eurostar. Yes, that was probably the... Uh, the Air France, was, yes, Sponsored by Eurostar <laughs> yeah. or Air France. I don't mind being sponsored by Air France, because that feels kind of French, but somehow Eurostar, because of the British connection, I don't know. I'm a massive fan of the Eurostar. I think it's the best way to travel. Do it is, it's wonderful. Actually, yes. it, when it when it's when it's working properly, it's great. But when you get stuck or there, I seem to have encountered a few problems over the years. Yes, I've the encountered a few problems. And, yeah. and when when it gets stuck, you've got ten trains of a thousand people. I know it's not fun to yeah. get on. It's yeah. not fun. It's not fun. But you you're now based in the south of France. I've been based in France for about thirty three years. So not now, it's, you know, a long, long time. We've had the olive farm, the place that I wrote all the olive farm books about, down in the south for about 33 years. And we have now a place outside Paris, which is in between Paris and Reims, Reims, as the English say. It's about equidistant between the two. So it's just on, just west of the Champagne area, about 10 minutes drive that side of the Champagne area. So we've got a place up there as well. So I'm kind of discovering different kinds of French life. Now, that's very La France Profonde, very rural very deep French agricultural country. And your, your books about the olive farm have sold over a million copies worldwide. Yeah, and still selling. I mean, still selling. It's wonderful. So tell us about the olive farm. Tell us first of all about the olive farm, where you live and how that inspired the books. Oh, well, yes, it certainly inspired the books. It is. They are memoirs about that. Well, it all began when I met a Frenchman in Australia who asked me to marry him on our first date, which I didn't accept straight away. But um, in fact, I didn't accept for four years. It was before we got married in the South Pacific. I'd met him in Australia when I was filming over there and he was the executive producer of the miniseries I was making I hadn't met him in advance we happened to be staying in the same hotel he rang my room, asked me to come down for a drink then he said have dinner with me the next evening and before we'd even got to the first course had been served he said I think we've got a problem and I thought it was to do with the rushes on the film 
and he said, I've fallen in love with you, will you marry me? So I didn't accept straight away, but I was pretty intrigued. But we, and we started seeing each other between Paris. We had a love affair going on between Paris and London, you know, one weekend here, one weekend there. Kentish town to the Champs-Elysees. <laughs> and then he was going down to Cannes for the film festival and said, you want to come down? and just spend a week with me. I'd been looking all over the world for what I described as my house by the sea. And while he was busy down there setting up deals and, you know, organising films and stuff, I thought, well, I'll just pop along here and see if there's a house by the sea. So I went in to see all these various estate agents, immobilier, and I said, bonjour. And they said, bonjour, madame. I said, I'm uh, Mademoiselle then. I'm looking for a house by the sea. And they said, mais bien sûr, madame, this is the south of France. And they said, uh, what's your budget? And when I told them my budget, they said, no, not for that money, madam. So at the weekend when Michelle had finished all that he was doing, we went up together. We weren't looking for somewhere together. I was still completely independent. Um, he said, well, let's go inland and see, you know, what's available. So one of the estate agents kind of took pity on us. He was a young fellow with a Mercedes, the length of his sight, I think. And he took us inland and said, you know, for that money, this is what's available. And it was kind of very dull, kind of little houses. And Michelle said, well, don't you know of a ruin or something that we could do up? And the man said, well, I do know of one. He took us to literally one stone wall in the field. And, and Michelle said, well, I think that's too much of a ruin. <laughs> and then he said, well, I do know of an olive farm and a vineyard. I'm not representing it. There's no gates or anything, so we could go and have a look. Um, it's been squatted, but I know it's been on the market for quite a long time. And, you know, through word of mouth, I've heard about it. Are you interested in that? And I thought, oh, that sounds... So off we went in this great big Mercedes and came to this little lane. Up in the hills we were, behind Cannes, overlooking the Bay of Cannes. And we came along this little lane, and indeed there was no gates or anything, and this jungle, but there was a, a pathway, a driveway that went up the, the hillside, and we drove up that. And I was sitting in the back, and there was kind of cobalt blue sky and swallows everywhere, because it was late April, May. There we were, this cream balustraded Italianate villa ruined. I mean, in a state of great disrepair, with a swimming pool that was all cracked and covered in ivy and everything. But it had a stunning view. He didn't want to go inside in his Giorgio Armani suit, but we sort of, <laughs> Michelle got him to bang the door open. I see, he said, look, it's been squatted. We can get in. And it was literally curtains and curtains of cobwebs inside. It, it was really a question of kind of, you know, peeling our way through and everything. But there was something really extraordinary, and I've been talking about it to do with this new book, The House on the Edge of the Cliff. And I looked out the window towards what now is the olive groves and, and um, a huge old magnolia grandiflora. And as I just stood there looking out, I knew I'd come home. I just knew I'd come home. The place was five times my budget, because at that stage I was still thinking of buying a loan. It needed everything doing to it there was no we then discovered no hot water no water no electricity this week we are having the water put in after 34 years the council have agreed to bring i mean we've been pumping it up from a stream beyond the foot of our land and this week after 34 years the council are giving us au courant as they call it you know regular running water that comes from an ordinary tap and everything so it's taken that long but we didn't know all that at the time and of course it was a jungle so we couldn't find where on the land the water was being sourced from but I don't know why. And we went down to Cannes afterwards and, and we sat down. Michelle ordered a bottle of rosé. And on a you know, paper napkin, while the festival was going on, we were sit, kind of, he was scrawling out figures, you know, les chiffres, how much we'd got, very little, how much it was going to cost, never mind what it was going to cost to do up. And um, 
I said, I don't know, I just really want it. I really would like a... And he said, you know, let's go into this together. And that was sort of the beginning of our real... I mean, we were very in love. We were very in love, there's no doubt about it. But um, at that stage, I mean, we'd still only known each other about... We met in October and this was May. So uh, different countries, different backgrounds, didn't really know that much. My parents were appalled. <laughs> they said, oh, what, now what? The man that said he fell in love with you over the first meal you ever had together, I think that's beautiful. Yes, it is. And he's a wonderful man and we are still together. And, you know, I've just been talking to him, been sending me photographs of flowers in the garden. Sometimes you just know, you know, you just know. I knew I didn't have to rush anything with him. I knew, I just knew that the relationship would take the time that it was going to take and we would just climb aboard when we were ready to and that included this place and it took us two years before we could afford to cut the land back once we'd paid the deposit we had to go to Belgium to pay the deposit which she wanted in cash she turned out to be the richest woman in Belgium <sighs> it was we went to their place and it was like Versailles and her husband was ill in bed and she called him from his sick bed down to open a bottle of Dom Perignon or, or whichever champagne Naturally. it was and, yeah of course I mean that's all they drank in this kind of marble flawed huge huge room with her secretary twittering around like some kind of frightened bird behind her and we signed I didn't know what I was signing because my French wasn't good enough in any case she spoke with a Belgian accent which is quite incomprehensible if your French isn't really up to scratch and Michelle she fell in love with Michelle instantly he charmed absolutely <laughs> charmed the socks off her and she took us to lunch at the Hilton where we had our old Volkswagen with mattresses and things because she said we could move into it for the summer before we owned it if we gave her money up front but she said if you if the works go through that you want to do if you give me this money up front if the deal doesn't go through to the end I keep all of it I mean she was a tough businesswoman it's probably I, how she got where she exactly had. and I, I mean she was a self-made woman you know really 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 I mean I admired her immensely but um, I didn't really understand her then she took us to lunch at the Hilton she said let me drive you to your car and we pretended we didn't remember where the car was and we didn't <laughs> want her to see all the mattresses <laughs> in, a, in an open car <laughs> <laughs> she had a, a, a small red sports Mercedes, you know, pillar red Mercedes, this kind of woman with all her hair, a formidable woman, and they're just driving around in this sports car. She could have just given you the house. She could have. She, she had five houses. No, she didn't. She think. had five houses in the south of France, all around Mujang, where we are, all around that area. She had five houses. She bought this one for one of her daughters who loved horses. Well, it's a hillside and on her stank. It's impossible for horses. And the daughter never moved in. So it was rented out to some woman who bred dogs, which I think every stray dog in the world comes to us. <laughs> and I've looked after and, you know, we've had for donkey's years all these dogs that have lived with us till they were 60. And I'm constantly bringing in stray dogs. And I think the, the place has got some kind of good karma about it for dogs. They can sense They can the, sense it. The they know it. They, uh, sometimes, yeah, when my dad died, I went down to collect the mail at the bottom of the drive. And there was this beautiful Alsatian, very thin. And it's like my father had sent her. She followed me up the drive and I fed her and she was with us for 16 years. You know, so there is something, there is something there. There's definitely various karmas there. And I just knew this place was going to be well it's transformed my life I mean I've become known as um, the Queen of Olives <laughs> I've, I've worked with UNESCO for the Olive Heritage Trail around the Mediterranean I've written two travel books that I spent 16, 17 months going around the Mediterranean to uncover the secrets and the history of the olive tree and its culture and cultivation I found 6,000 year old olive trees in Syria and Lebanon you know all of that I mean that wasn't on my dance card at all I didn't intend any of that my life was about being an actress and going to Hollywood 
Hollywood. You know, that's where I thought I was going. Well, your acting career sounds amazing as well. I mean, it has you. You're very well known for the the part of James Herriot's wife, wife Helen, Helen yeah. in the All Creatures, All Creatures Great, Great and Small, which I absolutely loved, and I loved the books as well. But one of the things I was really startled and very impressed by, by was your um, role in A Clockwork Orange. Oh, I knew you were going to say oh, yes. that. Uh, it was my very first job out of drama school. I know, it sounds amazing. I mean, literally, the day after I, I left drama school, I was because I hadn't got a job, I was down at my father, I was in my father's theatrical agency. My father was a musician and a theatrical agent and a million things to do with entertainment. And I was answering the phone, you know, who's going to give me some money until I I got a job and so I was answering the phone and telephone rang and this American voice said uh, hi I'd like to speak to Carol Drinkwater and I said yes that's me speaking uh, this is Stanley Kubrick's assistant I said sorry Stanley Kubrick like do you know who he is yes do you want to come and screen test for Stanley okay and I thought it was one of the girls from drama school I said come on Selena you're having me on do you want to come on screen test for Stanley on and I kind of life laughed my way through the screen test because I I, I sort of didn't take it seriously. I had to do a piece from some like it hot, a Marilyn Monroe piece. I just didn't take it seriously. It was only four lines, but it was a wonderful start to my career. And I mean, you know, I worked with Stanley and he was wonderful. I mean, was he? What was oh, he like extraordinary. You know, he's the only person I've ever worked with that every single member of his crew that I spoke to anyway said that he could do their job better than they could. He knew every aspect of filmmaking. They all respected him. There was never any, you know, often on film sets you hear sort of bitching or moaning or this, that and the other, or a bit of, you know, oh God, we could have done this or we could have been finished by now. Nothing like that. And because it was my first role, I didn't understand that that wasn't the benchmark. Well, I mean, it was the highest level of benchmark, but I didn't understand that it wouldn't always be like that, mm. you know. I mean, he was very good. I just, uh, in fact, I had four lines and two of them were cut before I even got to location <laughs> because they got very behind on, lo on, on the shoot because I think Malcolm McDowell was ill a bit and various things happened. So I was booked for two days in Milton Keynes and they kept putting the day back. They said, OK, it won't be this week, it's going to be next week. But because I was booked by the day, I was getting paid, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, 80 quid a day or whatever it was. Not but bad. for me, yeah, it was a fortune, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I got it three or four times over. So I, I really felt like... There are actors out there today that would be very grateful to be getting that as Liz a day, especially for Stanley Kubrick. But exactly so. that, you know, so, so it, was all, it was a truly wonderful experience. And Stanley, I had to sit all day in my costume, trying not to, and then he told me to Your get my top outfits. off. <laughs> my nurse's outfit. My nurse's outfit. He came and he was wonderful. He said, uh, hi, Carol, Stanley. And I said, yeah. kind of stared at him, completely starstruck. And he said, OK, let, well, while they prepare the set, let's sit down. I want to tell you what the film's about. Because I hadn't read the whole script. I mean, you know, with a, a kind of minions role like that, they just gave me a few pages of the script. So I never got, got the entire script. <laughs> so he sat me down. He said, this is what the film's about. I think maybe I'd read the book by then. I can't remember. Anyway, um, so he said, this is what I want want your role to do. This is the intention I have. This is the dynamic I want the scene to have. I mean, who explains all that today? Very few people. And then he said, OK, this is, uh, get your kit off. <laughs> he didn't use that expression. I said, what? Because nobody had said to me that it was going to be topless or indeed, or indeed nude. I think he originally wanted, and I renegotiated to topless. And I said, he said, you're a nurse and you've just been, you know, caught with um, the doctor because Sta um, Malcolm's calling you to his bedside for needs help or something and you have to come out and you're not dressed. So I said, well, what about if I'm caught half-dressed? Which he said, okay. And I said, why don't I keep my stiff 
collar and cuff. Terrific, he said. That's a terrific idea. So you so had to make the decision there and then whether you were going to get your kit off. Yeah, I did it topless. I did it topless rather than kit off entirely. I mean, he was complete. The thing about him was he was completely open to hear what a little tiny person like me had to say and indeed said, terrific, let's go with that. And then he said to me, uh, do you want a closed set? I didn't even know what a closed set was at the time. And I went, um, he said, you know, do you want the, uh, do you want all the crew to be sent out? So it's just principal crew, cameraman, sound, so that you don't feel shy. And I said, oh, yes, please. He said, okay, and called in the AD and it was all set up like that. And they rearranged. He was completely considerate. I, I just thought he was wonderful. And you just trust him as well, don't you? you Absolutely. Know, he knows what he's doing and he's not going to, you know... And that's what the crew all said. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants. He knows what he's doing. He's not pushing people aside to do it. He just quietly goes forward and does it. Well, I don't know about quietly, but I mean, you know, he says what he wants and goes forward and does it. It was a terrific opening to my career. And I was going to say, a great first proper job as well. Absolutely. And of course, I didn't know... I certainly didn't know that the film was going to turn into the classic that it was. I couldn't go to the premiere because I was at the Glasgow Citizens by then working. But it was lovely to get the car. I wish I'd kept my invitation. Yes, it has turned into Absolutely. And then when I went to see the film, I think in Bromley with my, I took my mum to see the film, <laughs> I got a round of applause when I came on. And my mum said, what's all this? Amazing, because yeah. they knew you were there. No, just oh, because... they it, just loved their role. The yeah, topless the girl. Oh, yeah, 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 that's yeah. so funny. Did, yeah, you go, yeah. did you nudge people and go, it's me that is? No, I just put my hand and my, mu- <laughs> my mother said to me, you've got your clothes on. Has <laughs> you not warned her? No. <laughs> and also going Irish with your mum to mom. see A Clockwork Orange anyway, let alone if you're in it and you've got your Well, I didn't out. really understand. I didn't get the film. I mean, I knew what he told me, but I didn't <laughs> really know what it was all about, you see. So I was so innocent. I mean, you know, I think young actors and actresses back then much more innocent than now, I think. So you wrote the six books about the olive farm mm. and then what was your next project? Then I did uh, then I well then I did a series of films uh, called The Olive Route which was commissioned by Arte which is German and French television about the my travels around the Mediterranean and the olive and all of that. That sounds like a great gig. Oh, it was amazing. It, because I was able to go back to countries that I'd been to already on my own with a fixer for the films and things. I mean it was a tiny crew we were three or four or something. It was you know very tight budget and all of that. Glorious photography and it sold worldwide except England. The British haven't bought it. They said nobody would be interested in olives which I think is nonsense. Everyone loves olives. Absolute nonsense but they haven't bought it so but it's done very well elsewhere won some awards and anyway so after that I did some novellas um, some fiction because I felt it was time for me to get back and maybe do some fiction. Then I got a contract with Penguin with Michael Joseph for originally two novels so this is a sort of a four novel contract and the new one The House on the Edge of the Cliff is number three. I did The Forgotten Summer and then The Lost Girl, which was a very important book for me. And then now this new one is called The House on the Edge of the Cliff. And it's set between The House on the Edge of the Cliff is in just near Marseille in an area called Les Calanques, which is the creeks means the creeks and it's a stupendous area it's so beautiful i'd originally set the book between where we live the bay of Cannes, and east towards italy and i knew the story i knew what i was 
what I was kind of doing with it, but I wasn't. Location is incredibly important for me. I, I have to know the sounds, the smells, the flora, the fauna, the colors, the weather, what people eat. All of that is, I have to ground my stories in all of that. And it's very important to me. I feel a bit at sea if I haven't got all that in place. So I wasn't quite happy with the location I'd picked. And so Michelle and I, quite by chance, one of those serendipitous moments, he took me to uh, Cassis, which is a small, was a small fishing port, has got bigger and more touristy now, in the, within the Calanque area. And we went there and I saw these. It's the highest maritime cliffs in Europe. It's national park land. It's stunningly beautiful. It's quite, and because it's parkland outside the little fishing villages, which have got reasonably touristy, it's really unspoiled. And I mean, you come, wonderful walking territory. And, you know, the sea blows in. I mean, the weather is very extreme there. It's either very hot and arid or, you know, these wonderful storms. And as soon as we got there, I just knew that was the location for my book. I wanted somewhere where someone could disappear where a man might be dead or not dead or where something from the past could haunt and everything about the area just spoke to me and I just thought this is exactly so I, I as it were I carried I re I, I repositioned my book I carried it all the way from close to Monton all the way back over to this area and spent some time there walking the um, walking the creeks going in the sea going on the shingle beaches there are lots of little creeks and they go in like fingers into the into the land as it were so you can go in there and sort of disappear and you bad things can happen and you don't necessarily know about it or you won't find it. So it was wonderful location for kind of something that was a mystery as well as a love story. And France is like that. It's got so many beautiful <sighs> places. But I think one thing that we don't realise until you're exploring rural France particularly is how sparsely populated it is compared to the UK. It's well, not for, something you know, we used to. It's the same population and it's it, how it's... More than twice the size? I can't remember the different... Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very, very much bigger. It's either twice or five times the size. Of, and it's the same population. So where are places outside Paris towards Champagne, which is our second home? Because my husband has to be within access to Paris because of, you know, the film business is mainly happening up there. We live in a hamlet where there's nothing. I mean, you know, there's... 14 houses or something and some of those are empty because they're weekend places mm. and Does we it get a little dull I know that sounds well no a, you're an hour from Paris yes yeah. you know I mean you can in the winter, shoot it I was and thinking, out. you know oh it's lovely in the winter is you it? can snuggle we've got a fireplace which is about the size of this room it's a 13th century commanderie so it was built for the for the knights who were going off to the crusades and things like that who also looked after the lo local rural area you know because it was feudal they they collected taxes and all that kind of stuff so the house is 13th century. The walls are as large as a car. I mean, they really are deep, deep, deep walls. So, yes, so uh, uh, inland, um, La France Profonde, as they call it, profound for deep France, is um, you can go... I mean, you know, little villages near us, and we are just an hour from Paris, you can drive through and the chickens are in the road. And the pigs are about, and that you know, it's it's like that, and uh, it's and there are towers everywhere, old tower, either si silo towers or towers on the houses. I mean, our old thirteenth—I called it the mad old chateau because it needs everything doing to it, and it's in a dreadful state, and it's kind of all wonky and wiggly and things. The mad old chateau has half a tower. It had two towers, but during the French Revolution, one was burnt down, and the other 
was semi-burnt down, so it has half a tower. So it's kind of, you know, all wonky and full of French history. Uh, France has such, and the modern history and the older history, it's wonderful. It's, there's so much to mine there. And not just, not just the beautiful scenery, but, you know, the wine, the food, the atmosphere. Well, you know, all France of those are in my books. I mean, I totally... My editor says that when she reads one of my books, she gains several kilos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Which I rather like. Another of your books was based in Paris and to do with the Paris attacks, not the Bataclan attacks, but the yeah. Charlie Hebdo attacks. Is that, did you? Well, the Bataclan, it's the Bataclan attacks. It was the book. Bataclan attacks. Yeah, the Charlie Hebdo was earlier in the year, was in January of 2015. The Bataclan attacks were um, November the 13th, Friday, November the 13th, 2015. And in fact, I was writing, this was my second book on this, on this contract for Penguin. And in fact, I was writing a different book, which about a plantation set on one of the Danton outside France. And it just wasn't coming together. I just couldn't get it to jump off the page and live. And I was worrying with it and not giving up on it. Then we were down at the olive farm. Um, Michelle, who's the cook, was in the kitchen cooking. And my mum was living with us then. She and I were laying up the table. And I did something that I never do. I said, look, I'm just going to put the news on. We almost never watch television. But uh, so I went and put the news on. And the first, all these attacks, there were six or seven attacks, all the same evening, really coordinated, all within the eastern part of Paris near Bastille. And the first attack had just taken place when I put the news on. You know, it was just coming up on the news. And I said, listen, I called to Michelle. I said, there's been an attack in Paris. And then the second, and then it continued. And while we were kind of, Michelle came to watch, and my mother came to watch. She doesn't speak French. She didn't speak French. But um, she was watching. She could see what was happening. Nobody knew what was happening at that stage. And then they said, I think by then there'd been four or five bomb attacks, suicide bombers. They they got alarmed out of the stadium, the Eastern Stadium, because they discovered two suicide bombers going into the stadium. It would have killed Hollande, Francois Hollande and all the spectators. It would have been you know a massacre. But they fortunately stopped them going in and they ran and they just let off their bombs and one or two people were killed, which is dreadful. But it wasn't the massacre that it would have been if they got into the stadium. Meanwhile, the next thing that happened was that three, two or three gunmen, they weren't sure, infiltrated the Bataclan, which used to be an old cinema, a famous old cinema, and then after the Second World War into the 60s, I think, it became a music venue, a very famous music venue. Maurice Chevalier uh, sung there, you know, French and then and then rock. There was about 1,500 spectators uh, and I said to Michelle, look at this, my mother was holding, I was crying, my mother had her arms wrapped around me, and though you couldn't see within because nobody could get in at that stage, it took three or four hours to mm-hmm. get into them, you could hear the shots, they were just systematic Automatically gunning down people that were in there. And my mother said, for every young person, because mainly young people, inside that concert hall, there's a mother waiting to know if her child will come out. Which wasn't meant to be some grand statement. She just, it was in passing she said that. And I, it just stayed there with me and we just watched. And then as soon as we went back up to Paris, I went to the Bataclan and I laid flowers and lit a candle and I walked all the various sites where the attentat, the, the attacks had taken place in the area. I mean, it was, France was really shocked. I mean, it was great grief. There were over 400 people hurt and I think 131 or something killed. And then just after Christmas, my mother died quite unexpectedly. She just got up to go to the loo and sat down and died in my arms. I mean, it was completely unexpected. And there she was. And I, I said to her, you know, you're not dead. You can't be dead. <sighs> Uh, it was a huge shock. She was incredibly healthy. 
getting old, but, but healthy. And so then I began the process of grieving, getting my mother's, because she was living with us then, getting my mother's body out of France and all of that stuff, everything kind of, and I had my first book on this contract, The Forgotten Summer, was about to be published. So I was dealing with all of that. I put aside the book I was writing. And then in the process of grieving and, and beyond, the, you know, the funeral and all that kind of stuff, I started hearing my mother's my mother's words for every child or young person that's in there there's a mother waiting outside and the story just grew from then I knew I had to tell that story and people said to me you can't write about something that's so new so raw and such an emotional and political subject but I knew I had to tell that story so it's a story about a, an English mother who goes to Paris because she thinks her daughter is in the Bataclan her estranged husband is in the Bataclan but the daughter who went missing the lost girl which is the title of the book may or may not be inside the concert hall but the, far, the husband certainly is and she's sitting in a cafe waiting to know whether or not they're going to come out and come and meet her later, uh, whether or not she's going to see her daughter again be reunited and then the news breaks that it's been infiltrated and that there are bombs and she's sitting in a cafe in a street where one of the bombs goes off and she gets talking to an 85 86 year old actress French actress who lives in that street and they spend the weekend together, the actress helps her get from one place to the other and they become friends over the weekend and you learn both their stories and the connection between the two of them and what happens to the husband and the lost girl, the daughter that's inside the Bataclan or that not. That's incredible. It's an incredible story. It's had, it's had, I mean, I say so myself because it's based on, I spent three months at the National Library in Paris where they have a media tech and I watched every piece of footage from that weekend. And now when people talk about it, I have to stop myself saying I was there because I wasn't there. But I feel as if I was there because I lived it so for so long. That must know. have been very harrowing going over all that footage. It was harrowing and it also gave me a chance in some way to, um, because the novel in the end is uplifting, you know, of course, has to be. You can't take a, a reader through that much and then not give them something, you know, something joyous at the end. And it also helped me deal with my grief and loss of my mother because I felt in a way, in some ways, she was the 85-year-old actress, though I'm the actress, not mummy, but glamorous like my mother. And I felt as if something of my mother's spirit was in the other character. And it helped me. She walked the book with me. You know, the book wrote itself. I don't remember writing them. I wrote it in about six months, which is quick for me. I normally take much longer. It was like my mother was holding my hand and, and was in the book walking through with me. It was extraordinary. That's a really lovely story to come out of such grief and horror. It's, you know, I think we shouldn't really shy away from these subjects. No, I think not. I, I mean, I'm reading something at the moment which I feel a, a proof that somebody's given me to read and it kind of lacks blood. And, you know, and I was thinking yesterday, why is this book not grabbing me? And I, I think it's important for us to really just head on, you know, really face into. There's, there's a lot of stuff out there and I think playing around and just it's not really hacking it. I think we need to kind of address these things and I like to think that if anybody that it was in some way touched by those um, terrorist attacks that weekend, I'd like to think that if they read the book that they would find something in it that could, I don't mean heal them, I don't feel that, I'm not that big headed, but just, you know, could journey with them, you know what I mean? Because I really do feel that I lived that weekend with those people and I'm very proud of that book I'm very proud of that book and I've had several um, several inquiries about films for it so I was going to say positive, make a you know, wonderful I'm, film and I, I think like you said a great 
tribute to the people who did Absolutely. I don't think ways. that I've abused or taken the material in any way and, and prostituted it. I, I like to think that I've really honoured the material and honoured the people that went through that harrowing weekend. And one of the other things is that I love Paris. I love Paris to bits. Mm. It's my kind of home city oh, now. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. And uh, that weekend was an extraordinary time to be there, though I wasn't there. Um, but from all the footage that I actually watched, I mean, the queues to give blood, you couldn't park anywhere near the hospitals, like four or five kilometers back. They were flying blood in from all over France because they ran out of blood from there were so many people in the hospitals. And the queue, Paris just came together in a way that Manchester did too. I'm not suggesting that it's only a French thing. I mean, Manchester did too. But Manchester was on a much smaller scale than what happened that weekend in Paris. But there were all kinds of tiny details, which was about the humanity of people and the goodness of people. And that's what I found in my olive root trails as well. When I was going around the Mediterranean, I was in war zones in Syria, Algeria, various places, stayed with family who'd been, you know, families that had been uh, been hurt by wars or whatever it happened to be. I, I was in, in Palestine for a lot of time. I went back for the filming there. I spent a lot, I, did the, I directed the filming in, in, for the films in Palestine myself because I was the one that understood and could relate. One of the things that everyone said to me about my 17 months travelling for those books around the Mediterranean is, you know, what did you bring back? And I would say the most important thing I brought back, and one of the things that I think the media does us a great disservice in, is what I brought back was humanity, not the negativities that we see at the moment in all the press, but the, it, the tiny moments of generosity, of, of goodness, the touching of you know, one woman talking to another woman, because women would talk to me in a way that they might not necessarily to men. I got invited into homes. I even slept in beds with women. You know, when I didn't have somewhere to stay, they invited me into their beds, and I kind of thought, what's all this? You know, and it was just, and they told me their stories and it was just those are the gifts you know they really are gifts and it's those moments of generosity and humility and sharing sharing the almost nothing that they have that I've brought away from that and the same thing is true of that weekend in Paris people really came together and I don't want to say you know all that thing about like war times and stuff but it, those moments when people know that the only way through is to help each other and to share with each other. And, and I think if only the newspapers told more of that rather than bringing us down with all this negative energy, you know, instead of saying this happened and allowing us to actually realise that humans are fundamentally good and we love each other fundamentally. You know, we're not about... We don't grow up with all these prejudices. They're fed into us and a lot of it is by the newspapers and the media. And this is the beauty of travel, isn't it? Absolutely. It exposes Absolutely. you to people, to cultures, to Absolutely. something that feels so foreign and so different, but actually you realise that essentially we're all the same. We're all the same. And and it's the joy of learning. I mean, like, for example, now it's Ramadan. And I've spent... I've been to countries where, you know, it's the Islam fasting, the month of fasting. And I've been there during those those times and things are closed in the day. And then suddenly you... And the first time I went, I, I think I was in... Um, somewhere in, in, in the Maghreb, in, in northern Africa, uh, maybe Algeria, maybe Tunisia, I can't remember. And I came out of my hotel about nine o'clock at night thinking I must get something to eat. And suddenly the streets were coming to life. And I didn't understand. And the joy of the people in the evening, the families, the children, the babies, they're all going to restaurants, 14 and 15 people all booked to eat together. 
And I just thought, this is amazing. It's complete. It's like Christmas every night. And then, of course, Ramadan's over and the breaking of the fast and the, those days of celebration afterwards and gift giving. And I just thought, we never hear about that. You never hear about that. You never hear about the, about the humility and the generosity and the sense of respect for life that comes from Islam. You don't hear about that. You just hear about all this negative stuff that actually has nothing to do with Islam. It's everything to do with extremism from whatever side. Extremism, whatever side, exactly that. It's the extremists that are are creating the hate and are are, are fermenting all this negative energy. And the the ordinary Muslims, ordinary Jews, they're not the extremists. You know, these are the people that actually want peace and want to live side by side with other people. And you see it when you go out there and travel. And just go about their day, don't they? They just want to go about their day. And well, they will help someone if they're hurt. Well, very quickly, because we're going to run out of time. And I know it's wonderful. I could go on for for ages. But tell us about your new book. Yes, we haven't really talked about the new book. Um, It's a love story. It's a story of a girl of 16 who goes to Paris before she's going to drama school. It's an actress's story. It's not autobiographical. But she goes to Paris when she's 16, and it's 1968. On her very first day in Paris, she meets an English student who's studying at the Sorbonne. He gives her somewhere to stay. She stays with him and his family, diplomatic parents. And he's quite opposed to what's, you know, the diplomatic point of view of the British. And he gets caught up in the student uprisings of Paris 68, the famous Paris 68, which I researched in great depth in the same way that I did for The Lost Girl. And I had a ball doing it because it was a wonderful time in French history. I mean, really a wonderful time. And in fact, in some ways, I think the the 60s and the early uh, 70s might have been the last great... um, period of optimism and I I was young then I was completely apolitical at drama school in London I uh, kind of Paris 68 passed me by but when I researched it I thought to myself I like to think that I would have been there Mm -hmm. if it was now I'd like to think that I'd say I'm off to France I will I will stand up with those those students and so I thought I'm going to write a girl who gets caught up in that and what it what it means for her what she discovers and then uh, for various reasons they have to flee peter and grace grace is the young girl they have to flee paris they go to his aunt's house which is the house on the edge of the cliff just outside marseille and they spend the summer down there in summer 68 and she meets somebody else another young man and something happens that summer which shadows the rest of her life and the book begins in the present with a stranger coming back to that house or coming to that house finds grace and tells grace that he knows what happened that summer so it's a love story on many levels it's a love story about france it's a, it's my eulogy to france it's a love story between peter and grace which which covers five decades it's another kind of love story a love story of passion when one makes a mistake and it's also it's it's a love story for that kind of life and and for 68 for when young people actually believe they could change the world oh it sounds amazing (laughs) it sounds right up my street with the 60s and the romance and the travel and And the sense of danger the sense of danger that that runs through it there's a vein of menace that runs through it also picturing the fashion the The fashion and you know what else the music i did an interview i did an interview the other day and he played the soundtrack from the uh, from the book not all of it but we had a ball sitting in 
the studio listening to Bob Dylan, Mamas and Papas, Bob Marley. Oh, oh it was just a wonderful. Yeah, all music, that wonderful music. brings me on very nicely to my last question because my last question is always about music because to many people and to me, travel and music go hand in hand. Absolutely. And I'm going to ask you a difficult question to pick. If you had to pick one song that reminds you of a memorable place and time of travel, what would that one song be? Oh, gosh, you should have asked me this in advance. <laughs> I would probably have had an answer straight away. Uh, Killing Me Softly, perhaps. Um, originally it was by uh, R- Roberta, Roberta Flack. Flack. Yes. Killing, I, and I, funny enough, I heard it yesterday. Now, that's not a song from, I, it's not in this book, but um, it is a song. I tell you why it particularly reminds me of travelling, because, in fact, it's a song that I did listen to when I was at drama school here in England. But I, I was, uh, every year, if I can, there's a, something called Jazz à Juan, which is down at Juan les Pins, um, which is right near Nice, and it's a big jazz festival, and it's out of doors. It's at Les Pinèdes, which is the famous umbrella parasol Uh, pine trees and it's right on the edge of the sea and you get great I've seen Ray Charles there about four times, Miles Davis I mean you know the greats have all played it I was meant to see Ella Fitzgerald but she had to cancel and then she died quite soon after that but I saw Nina Simone there and it was late at night, the place was packed with about 6,000 people the sun was setting over the sea and she was on stage with just the piano, I mean God, she she was just the great, really amazing, and she did well. She did all her classic songs, but she also did "Killing Me Softly," and you could, I mean, you could hear the waves coming in. She was just electric, and I think it, "Killing Me Softly" and some of those other songs that she did, some of her most famous songs. That that for me, it's heat, the wash of the sea, the you know light clothing, open-toed shoes tan skin, being away from home, maybe being in love, a chill glass of wine, all of that, and jazz. That's that's it for me. That's amazing. <laughs> if I was listening to this in the winter, I'd be crying right now. Thinking, <laughs> I'm so desperate for that. But as we're moving into the summer, that's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much, Carol, for bringing France and romance to life in such a beautiful way. And we wish you all the best with your new novel. Thank you very much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.